From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn about a project that aims to improve birth and postpartum outcomes for black pregnant people. We'll learn about Golda Meir and how living in Milwaukee influenced her decades-long political career in Israel. He was less of a thinker than a doer. But as a doer, she showed the capacity to fulfill virtually any role, and people knew that she was reliable. Plus, we'll learn about a community garden that takes beauty seriously. I firmly believe that every neighborhood in this city deserves beauty. And so to me, as a, as a total gardener geek, to me that was flowers. To me that was having the beauty of the natural surroundings. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Pregnant black people in Wisconsin face much higher risks than their white counterparts. Black people are three times more likely to die in childbirth, and post-pregnancy, they face much higher rates of postpartum depression. A new project from the Wisconsin Medical Society, Pharmacy Society of Wisconsin, and the Wisconsin Nurses Association is seeking to change that by filling in gaps in coverage. Dr. Wendy Malaska is part of this effort. She's a family practice physician and the immediate past president of the Wisconsin Medical Society, and she joins Like Effects Joy Powers to talk about the issue. What are some of the disparities that we see in Wisconsin between the health of pregnant black people and uh, pregnant white people? Um, Unfortunately, in Wisconsin, we see a lot of health disparities. We do not see as good of outcomes in terms of our black moms and babies. Things like increased um, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, low birth weight um, babies, um, preterm labor. These are all more common in our black mothers throughout Wisconsin as opposed to a lot of our white uh, mothers. The problems extend from both the kind of during pregnancy to um, the postpartum period as well in terms of other mental health concerns, overall health of both moms and babies, and then overall what we call morbidity and mortality. So all of the potential complications of pregnancy and then even the death rates of black moms and babies are much worse um, than our white counterparts. And issues that ultimately do extend beyond the period of pregnancy and into, uh, as you mentioned, postpartum? Oh, for sure. So what a lot of people in kind of, I think, the lay general population um, don't consider is that um, as a medical society, we consider that there's a fourth trimester after moms deliver um, where they're still at increased risk of multiple problems. And actually for even a year after giving birth, moms are at increased risk of multiple problems. Um, such as mental health concerns, postpartum depression, things like heart failure. Um, There are multiple complications that can occur even after delivery. And again, unfortunately, we see these more in our Black mothers than we do, um, or at least poorer outcomes, I would say, in our Black mothers than in our white mothers. What are some of the reasons for these disparities? The reasons for the disparities um, can go into so many different, in so many different directions. There's so many things underlying these disparities in terms of access to health care, having good quality, um, easily accessible health care, 
mental health um, in terms of micro and macro aggressions that Black mothers face. In general, our Black moms um, face a lot more stress throughout pregnancies. They might not have as good social networks. Um, unfortunately, I've actually seen in clinics where Black patients are not taken as seriously as their white counterparts, um, perhaps by physicians. There's a lot of, I think, unconscious bias, um, as well as conscious bias in some people um, in terms of how we're treating um, our patients in general. And we see this playing out in terms of the health disparities um, we see with our Black mothers. As you say, this is a, a very complicated issue. A lot of these things are ultimately cultural, and it's hard to kind of parse through that and really weed out some of these issues and, and address them. Um, but one of the first things you mentioned, of course, is barriers to care uh, that disproportionately affect Black people in Wisconsin. Uh, and of course, uh, we just got a grant to help address some of these postpartum barriers. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the um, Wisconsin Medical Society is um, really proud to be among some of the grant recipients, um, along with the Pharmacy Society of Wisconsin and the Wisconsin Nurses Association. Our goal is to try and launch um, pilot programs to address some of these disparities, especially in overall care and uh, mental health of Black mothers during and after pregnancy. And so what we're excited about as well is that this is a collaborative effort between nurses, pharmacists, um, physicians, um, and even reaching out into the community uh, to include other community workers and partners and doulas, whatever we can to try and reach out to our Black moms, make sure that they're getting the care that they need, make sure that they have access. Our health system is so complicated these days that it's just so hard to navigate a lot of times and it's hard to understand, you know, where to go and when to go to do things. Um, and so if we have multiple partners involved with these women trying to make sure that they're going to prenatal appointments on time, getting the labs that they need, the immunizations that they need, any follow-up and support that they need from, you know, a community standpoint all the way through um, the medical standpoint, that's what we're going to hopefully work on. So trying to take a uh, kind of holistic look at the different ways in which people access health care and uh, that health care accesses them in some ways. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a family physician who's done obstetrics, you know, um, from my standpoint, it's always been about the care of the mom, the baby, the entire family. And I think kind of going back to that model, because if we can get, you know, partners involved with the community, if we have our nurses involved or pharmacists, when a woman is potentially going in to pick up a prescription, the pharmacist can make sure that, you know, hey, yeah, you're picking up this prescription for your prenatal vitamins, but how are you doing? And, you know, just having that conversation. And I think, you know, making sure that we are all having that conversation and then all communicating in terms of, um, you know, maybe the pharmacist noticed that the patient hasn't picked up their prenatal vitamins. Who should the pharmacist contact to be able to say, you know what, you sent this in, but the patient hasn't picked them up. So how do we make sure that they are getting what they need? As you've mentioned, uh, it, it's a lot about creating a kind of community support system, but a lot of this is down to individual people, individual decisions. As you say, there is both explicit and implicit bias that I, I think we all deal with to some extent. What are some of the limitations that you find as a physician in dealing with these larger issues? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I 
think, again, a lot of this comes down to some of it on the on the bigger aspects of educating um, our physicians, our nurses, our pharmacists, our entire healthcare team about the implicit and explicit biases that we all carry. I think that is important, and I think a lot more emphasis has been placed on that lately to understand that we all carry these implicit and explicit biases and how we can address those as we are working and taking care of patients. Um, and then I think some of it as well is just developing that one-on-one -on -one relationship with patients um, and making sure that they are confident in their relationship with their providers that they can um, bring up um, their concerns. But I think a lot of this goes back to education of the, the whole healthcare team. Sure. Well, Dr. Malaska, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. My pleasure. Always great to be here. Thank you, Joy. Dr. Wendy Malaska is a family practice physician and owner of Dedicated Family Care Clinic, and she's the immediate past president of the Wisconsin Medical Society. She joined Lake Effect's Joy Powers. Have you always wondered how public radio is made? Well, are you looking for something fun and interesting to do tomorrow night? Come on over to Lake Effect Onsite. We're taking the show on the road once again to celebrate another Milwaukee neighborhood. You can join us tomorrow at Anodyne Coffee in Walker's Point for a live taping of the show. Tickets are free, but reservations are suggested. Check out wuwm.com for more information. In about 15 minutes, we'll learn how an author's experience growing corn created a community and a connection to her ancestors. It's brought us back to our language, to our culture, to our history. Corn has just really led the way for a different lifestyle, and we are so much happier because of it. But first, we'll learn about Golda Meir, the first female prime minister of Israel, and how her time living in Milwaukee influenced her political activism. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. You may have seen the movie Marquise up for a new film about Golda Meir. She was Israel's fourth prime minister and only woman to hold that post to date. The new film Golda depicts Meir's time as prime minister during the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Helen Mirren portrays her. While Mayer is best known for her five decades in Israeli politics, perhaps you've noticed her local legacy passing by the Golda Meir Elementary School or even the library on UW-Milwaukee's campus. That's because she spent formative years in Milwaukee after her family moved here from Russia. Maron Medzini not only knows about Mayer's time in Milwaukee, he also served as her spokesman during the 1973 war. He was a consultant on the current day film and wrote an extensive political biography on Mayer. Medzini joins me now to share more insights about Golda Meir and begins by explaining what led her to leave Milwaukee to pursue political activism in Israel. What sort of future can a young Jewish girl growing up in Wisconsin, let's say around First World War, before women had the right to vote in America, what does the future hold for me? At best, I can be a teacher, I can be a clerk, a nurse, a hat maker, a sales clerk at some uh, department store, uh, nothing very exciting. 
and she already saw for herself a far better future. And therefore she realized, not here. I'll have to go away and two things will happen. I will go to Palestine. I will become one of the founders or lay the foundations for a future Jewish state. In the process, I will build myself. And this is basically what happened. She built herself, her career, and eventually she reached the top. So she loved America. She had very, very strong feelings about America, especially Wisconsin, which is a beautiful state. She loved the lakes, the greenery, the space, the freedom, the democracy, the unions, and so on. But she came to the conclusion, this is not a place where I can fulfill my dreams, my ambitions. The one who objected to the whole thing was her husband. He did not believe in the idea of a Jewish state. He thought he would convince her she would outgrow this madness. She thought she would convert him. But she did in, a, in certain respect. And uh, they married. She, she went back to Milwaukee, finished school, did two years teacher's training. In fact, did some teaching for new immigrants in, in America. I think she taught them English. And uh, 1921, a new chapter, a group of, of 20, 21 people got on a boat in New York, among them my mother and Golda and her older sister, children of her older sister. And two months later, they landed in Tel Aviv. Before they got on the boat to return to Tel Aviv, she was a part of the Milwaukee Labor Zionist Party, right? When she went to what is now UW-Milwaukee becoming a teacher? That's right. How did the Labor Zionist Party influence what she would take back to shape her own political career in Israel? Very much so. Basically, ideology. I, I omitted to say something else. Golda, apparently from very early age, she began to develop an acute sense of social justice. She was not religious in any way, more than secular. She smoked on the Sabbath, she drove on the Sabbath, she loved Chinese food, but uh, her ideas were essentially nationalist, Zionist, uh, secular, progressive, socialist. So I imagine you came to know Golda through your mother long before you were her spokesperson from 1973 to 74, right? My first memories of Golda uh, were from mid-1930s. The rasping voice always with a cigarette in her hand. And my mother quite often used to travel to Lviv to see her sister. Uh, she was at my wedding later on, and always flowers and gifts and congratulations. Children were born. And, uh, we were at the wedding of her children. Uh, in terms of relationship, I think she was the closest and sort of a confidant of my mother. She knew, Golda, that she could confide in my mother her innermost secrets and nothing would leak out. So when you did come to have a relationship with Golda as someone working with her in her cabinet, what were your impressions of her as a leader, as a speaker? How did she present herself in this way? Uh, look, she became one of the top, I don't know, 15, 20 leaders of the country already in 1930. 
when she was one of the founders of the leading Labour Party, it was called Matai. And uh, she was lucky in the sense that the leadership of the Jewish community of Palestine, the labor leadership, were very impressed with her when a year after she arrived, mainly because of her ability to communicate in Yiddish originally, and very much so in English. And therefore at age uh, 23, 24, she was already playing some political role with very poor Hebrew, but uh, they were very impressed. They realized they have an asset. From 1928 on, she became secretary of the Women's Workers' Council and then member of the executive of the trade union, which was a very powerful instrument uh, at the time working very closely with the future leaders of uh, Israel. She did not really contribute much to the Zionist socialist ideology. She was less of a thinker than a doer. But as a doer, she showed the capacity to fulfill virtually any role. And people knew that she was reliable. Now, all this came at, uh, at the expense of family life. She spent nearly her whole life in political involvements of some sort. She rose to prime minister of Israel. You served with her in 1973 and 74, and this period was also marked by the Yom Kippur War. And the movie Golda depicts this period of the war. Helen Mirren portrays Golda Meir. You also served as a consultant on this film. So what did you feel were the most important things the filmmakers needed to know about Golda and her experiences during the Yom Kippur War? In helping out on the film, I was joined by my son. My son organized Zoom conferences with the director, who was an Israeli, who was born shortly after the Yom Kippur War. He read my book. I did a very long political biography of Golda Meir. He read it. He read other books on Golda, and he said to me, I know the history. I don't know Golda. Could you please tell me how she operated? Style. She was calm. She was collected. No shouting. No screaming. Uh, no uh, loss of temper. Uh, two packs a day of cigarettes. Endless cups of coffee. Uh, she did not read material. Interestingly enough, she did not go over documented, diplomatic documents other. Partly because her Hebrew was not that good, partly because already then she had some cataract problems. She gained her information from being told. There were people there who told her what, uh, what was happening, and she relied heavily on what they would tell her, knowing that they will not betray her. She knew how to ask the right questions. If she was annoyed with you, she'd give you a dirty look. She'd look you in the eye and <laughs> you understood that you were out of place. And very, very quickly you came to order. Uh, but apart from that, uh, no jokes. And uh, she was operating basically in an area full of men. And uh, look, it, it's three. Uh, the war lasted over three weeks. and. Uh, she was 
she was not treated for cancer during the time. Normally she would get a once a week chemotherapy and she held out, she held out extremely well. Now she ran the war in the following uh, manner. A small group, five people, an inner cabinet or a war cabinet. And, uh, and she began to make decisions, tactical, strategic, foreign policy, relations with Kissinger and Nixon, while maintaining a close uh, control of the home front. Above all, she, her policy during the war, they started the war, they had to pay for it, they had to be punished. At some point, she realized maybe there is hope that a greater change is in the offing. She had been accused for many years in Israel as being rigid, intransigent, inflexible, uh, all sorts of terrible things. Because partly her own uh, penchant for secrecy. And she had a saying, if and when the archives would be open, people will see how far I was prepared to go. As you said, these impressions of Golda are still controversial today for some people, for some Israelis. How do you hope this look at the film could change or enlighten others? Because most people may not go looking for the archives. It, it, it will change. Look, during the war, uh, I was her spokesman. I was an unemployed spokesman. The second day of the war, she called me in. She said, no interviews, none at all. And I had piles of requests. I tried to argue, which of course was useless. And at some point she said to me, don't you know that there's a war on? And that was it. She refused adamantly to be interviewed. I can imagine why. She, she was afraid of people asking, uh, why weren't you prepared? Why was Israel caught by surprise and so on? And therefore, in terms of boosting morale during the war, I can't say that she contributed much. Curiously enough, overseas, especially in the United States, she was always the queen of, of Israel, the queen of the Jews. In Israel, younger generation raised and taught to question her wisdom. Some people said she was half literate. Some people said she was illiterate. Others said that she failed to understand the reality. She, part of the tragedy was at age 71, when she became prime minister, you don't change views that she had of Arabs for years and years remained more or less the same. And in this respect, she was pessimistic. Uh, she was not the only one. Uh, entire leadership, starting with Ben-Gurion, we've got to rely only on ourselves. No one else will save us if something goes uh, wrong. Uh, and therefore, uh, many Israelis, young Israelis, felt that she was in fact, blocking the possibility, remote possibility of peace. And we saw that in, especially in 1970-71, now it's turning around. Now younger Israelis, let's say my grandchildren, are beginning to get a totally different view. 
and in a certain respect there is growing understanding and probably respect as well for what you did. Well, Marin, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and sharing a little bit more about Golda Meir. My pleasure. Maron Medzini is a professor emeritus at the University of Jerusalem, former director of the Israel government press office, and the former spokesperson for Prime Minister Golda Meir. Medzini visited Milwaukee recently for a screening of Golda and shared his personal connection to her and her family. In the Oneida language, the word for corn has two meanings. It's our corn, but also our precious. Throughout time, corn has been a staple in the Oneida diet, and an important part of daily and ceremonial life. When the Oneida people were forcibly removed from present-day New York State to the reservation in northeastern Wisconsin, they brought corn seeds with them. Saving those seeds and the knowledge to cultivate them is a tradition that has been passed down for generations. In her book, Rebecca Webster explores the relationship between Oneida people and corn. Webster is a citizen of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin. She and her husband own a farmstead on the reservation, where they grow corn and other Haudenosaunee varieties of beans and squash. They use their farm as a place to share their knowledge and teach community members how to reconnect with Oneida foodways. WUWM's Lena Tran speaks with Webster about the book. I guess just to start, you know, where did this book begin for you and why corn? Corn is the eldest of the three sisters and she's the leader of those garden plants. And in so many ways, she has led us throughout all of our history. I really got swept away with the corn relatively recently. We didn't start growing our indigenous foods until 2015. We talked about growing our foods for a long time. Um, It just wasn't feasible while I was in college, came back, had children right away. And finally, we just said, we need to do this. And and we were really swept away by how much this food has connected us to relatives out east, people within our community. It's brought us back to our language, to our culture, to our history. Corn has just really led the way for a different lifestyle. And we are so much happier because of it. Can you talk about the significance of the book's title? Sure. So it's called Our Precious Corn, Yungwanasti, and Yungwanasti really has two meanings. One is our corn, but it also means our precious, because the corn really is so precious to our people. And um, there were times when she was scarce, but there was always times she was there. When I was interviewing community members about their relationship with corn, so often they used the word precious when they were describing this corn, that it just was a natural fit. So I was talking with our uh, chief in the community, Bob Brown, about what am I going to name this book? I, I need to think of a title. And then he very patiently reminded me of a story he told me about what what the meaning of Yungwanasti is and how how it means our precious and how it means our corn and, and all of the different things that, that go along with that because of why corn is so important. And it was one of those, oh, you, you told me the answer and I just didn't hear you the first time. So it took another reminding of why why to name the book that. That's special. Yeah, you talked about the 
interviews that you did with community members, there is a great deal of archival research in the book. There's historical accounts and oral histories kind of depicting early Oneida life before the nation even came to Wisconsin. And then there are tons of interviews with people in your community who are growing corn and like talking about their favorite ways to cook it. Can you just talk about what the process was like gathering all of the material and interviews for this book? Yeah, that was a really amazing part of all this. I really had a a wonderful time digging in the archives, trying to find stories and instances when our people talked about corn or corn was relevant at pivotal moments in our history. And then to gather all of that information and, and then go out into the community and ask the community their perspectives of our history, their relationship with growing the corn, uh, eating the corn, childhood memories. You expect to hear certain things when you're going out there because you've done the research and you grow the corn yourself. But it was so much more than I could have ever anticipated to hear our community talk about our corn this way. It was so beautiful. And I was so happy to be able to weave their stories throughout our history in this book and and to be able to share them back with the community. I'm, I'm really excited that it it's finally available for people to hear our stories. And I love the way that you present it where, you know, you have these big chunks of text and it's like, okay, this person is speaking straight to us um, in their own words. Do you have any favorite tales that were shared with you or favorite memories? Yeah. So there's so many memories in here. And just like, for example, we homeschooled our daughters. And I think during the writing of this book, they were, I believe, 15 and and 16 or 15 and 17. But the younger daughter, you know how you tell them things and you think they're not really listening. They think they're not paying attention. But when I sat down and I interviewed her, she talked about our removal period, which like so much of our history was pretty traumatic when our people were removed from New York to what would later become Wisconsin. And, And she wondered about what varieties of seeds that our ancestors carried with them. But she also wondered what varieties did we have to leave behind? And it was just really moving to me to know that that she was having these thoughts about, about our seeds that, you know, I, I didn't even think about myself until, you know, she had started to talk about it. And so th- that one for sure. Yeah, I love the stories. And I love that what you collected really runs the gamut from kind of what you described your these more like painful reflections that your daughter is having to kind of hilarious stories. I think one that I remembered was someone who was like, oh, the elders don't like my corn casserole or something. So it's like so funny. I guess it strikes me that the way that those interviews are presented, you're preserving a lot of knowledge in this book um, with wisdom for many people. And I know outside of the book, you know, you've created this teaching farm with your family where people can reconnect and learn about corn and Oneida foodways and cultivation. What called you to this work? So my husband and I, we were both raised in this community, but we didn't have access to a lot of that knowledge. And when we decided to grow our foods again, there wasn't a whole lot of places that we could go to, to to figure out all of the things that we wanted to learn about. There were people in our community that did share some knowledge with us. We did go out East to gather knowledge there. So we gathered knowledge from all over the place. And even, you know, in the historical record about how we had traditionally grown our foods. When we were looking, sometimes it 
there was shame and embarrassment because we didn't have the answers because we didn't know about these foods. We didn't know what seeds we had, how to best grow them because that knowledge had been taken from us through colonization, assimilation and removal. And it took a lot of work to learn what we learn now or what we know now. And we're still learning. There's still so much for us to learn. So we wanted to create a safe space for people to learn with us. So they didn't have to be embarrassed that they don't know these things already. And also for our seeds to come home, a safe space for those to grow. And then we can turn around and share them with the community as well. It must have been really difficult just to try to grow foods at this subsistence level without having done that before. I imagine it was really frustrating and rewarding. I guess what what were some of the challenges and who did you go to when you were trying to figure things out? Lots of hurdles. Uh, money. We don't have generational wealth for agriculture. You know, we had to refinance up the house for a tractor, for a UTV. We, we were able to access some USDA grants at the beginning for a high tunnel pollinator habitat tree planting. Then when we formed a 501c3 two years ago, then we had access to even more grants. So we were able to expand our teaching space, install a commercial certified kitchen on our farmstead so that we could bring people in and learn how to, how to cook our traditional foods in a conventional setting. So there are all kinds of things that we have been able to do, but you know, money and knowledge are the two big hurdles that, that we had, but we're just plowing through uh, literally and figuratively to try to find the, a way to make this happen. And so far we've been able to do that and, and we're having fun doing it. This is WUWM's Lena Tran. I'm speaking with Rebecca Webster. She is an Oneida citizen and a corn grower and the author of a new book called Our Precious Corn. It's all about the Oneida relationship with corn. You obviously need land to grow food. And we have talked before about how the United Nation lost so much of its land through these shifts in federal Indian policy and non-Native people are able to acquire it. So I guess, you know, outside of what you and your husband are working on personally, what does the movement look like now to reconnect with that heritage and kind of surmount this land access issue? Yeah, so I think within the tribal government structure, they are trying to find ways to make our agricultural land more accessible to individual tribal members who want to try things differently. We do have a handful of conventional tribal member farmers that have been farming for a long time. What seems to be percolating now is some farmers who are trying different things, you know, environmentally sensitive practices or just different ways to do things than has been historically done. In in addition to that, we have some tribal members like us who are purchasing our own land on the reservation and just going in you know, feet first, trying to figure all of this stuff out. So there's there's a few tribal members that are doing that as well. So I think there's just these different approaches to getting this knowledge base out there and sharing what we're learning as we as we do that. Mm-hmm. And there's also this co-op, right? Where yeah, yeah. So it's called Ohelagu, and we formed that in 2016. And that's right now. I think we have about 15 Oneida families in this co-op. And we farm between, you know, four and seven acres a year, just depending on 
on conditions and in, in the needs at that at that time. So what we do is we conventionally plant our Tuscarora white corn together. That's one of the most common of our varieties of corn. And we do that with plows and tractors and, and um, to get the corn in the ground and the ground ready. And then we come through and we use a cultivator until the corn gets so high. But after that point, that's when it's very different than conventional planting in that we hand weed after that point and we hand harvest. So that's a, a pretty lengthy process. When we harvest the corn, we, we take the husks off and then we braid all of our corn and we hang it in a barn to dry for several months. And that, you know, historically has been the, the staple in our diets. So we, our goal is to make that corn more available for our community members. And then there's this idea towards the end that corn can help your community prepare for an uncertain future. So it's like that's happened in the past and you're kind of doing that again. You talk about climate change or supply chain disruptions like we saw during the pandemic. Can you talk about why corn or even more broadly food sovereignty is food security? Yeah, I think we're when we saw during the pandemic how the food chain just in parts just collapsed and was unstable. We end up, ended up getting through that, but we saw the weaknesses in, in how that all works and our reliance on being able to go to the grocery store and have the foods that we're accustomed to be there and be available. I think by taking control and growing our, more of our own foods, especially foods that our bodies were meant to eat and not the highly processed foods that are available in the grocery store, I think that is a way to help us not only get healthy again, but to be secure in where our food comes from, to know what's in that food, and to know that it has historical and cultural connections to us as a people. Rebecca Webster is the author of the book, Our Precious Corn. She's an Oneida citizen, corn grower, and teacher. She spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran in May. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast, download, and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Neighborhood beauty is something that is often overlooked as an aspect of health. Coming up next, we'll visit a community garden that takes beauty seriously by inviting student artists to create art and infrastructure to supplement the fresh produce and flowers already growing there. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. When you think of the Housing Authority of Milwaukee, you probably think of, well, housing. But one housing authority lot serves a different purpose, neighborhood beauty. Located near 23rd and Cherry Street in the Midtown neighborhood on Milwaukee's north side, Cherry Street Community Garden is a place for residents to connect to their agricultural roots and nurture beauty. Recently adorned with community art from a grant received last year, the Cherry Street Garden has been a place for area residents, many living in adjacent housing authority property, to gather amongst food and art. Lake Effect Sam Woods visits the garden to learn more about how it was founded and what it's become. In a city of concrete, nicknamed after cream-colored bricks, 
keeping a connection to your family's agricultural roots might seem impossible, or at least impractical. But Santana Webb is finding a way. Now, she's only a freshman in high school, but she has been growing food next to her midtown neighborhood home for over 10 years, together with her grandmother, Linda. Now, I visited her garden plot recently, and let me tell you, she beams with pride when she tells me about everything she's growing, from the tomatoes to the jalapenos, the peppers, the beans, all of it. But she also is reflective about how nurturing these crops helps her connect to her family's southern roots. My mom and my grandmother was actually raised in the south, so um, they make fried green tomatoes every now and then, and tomatoes are just great. And then the collards, um, my mom and my grandmother, um, when they were in the south, they used to let the frost hit them first, and then they would pick them because they taste better like that and they're more um, like tender and stuff. So, and then she stores them in freezer bags so she could use them for like holidays, like New Year's Eve, Christmas. Um, sometimes she cooks them on Easter. So just like special events. And while Santana is the one connecting to family traditions established in previous generations, she actually played a big role in getting her family gardening again after they moved to Milwaukee. Originally starting in the Cherry Street Garden with her grandmother as a child, she slowly brought more and more of her family across the parking lot from their home to dig into the soil and develop their roots. Basically, after like the first or second year of gardening, um, I went back to my mother and I was telling her about it and like I was so eager. Like my mom, she knew that I really liked it. So I asked her, would she start coming out and get a garden for me? and um, so we could have our own garden. And she was like, all right. She was like, I'll try it. And so she started coming with me and my grandmother. And basically, once we got her out, we got my other grandmother out. And since then, everyone has been gardening. Stories like these bring a smile to Lisa Ruskowski's face. In 2012, Lisa and her husband Rick founded Cherry Street Garden built on land owned by the Housing Authority and operated by Bloom MKE, a nonprofit that manages the garden, in addition to providing gardening education programs and even little free library book drives. The garden was named for its proximity to Cherry Street in Milwaukee's Midtown neighborhood. But the cherry trees that line the garden's borders today would coincidentally come later. Yeah, this, this garden's really blossomed over the last 10, 12 years. So we started with uh, 19 raised beds. We've now grown to 33, plus a few little um, spot gardens to kind of highlight some additional growing techniques. And then in 2015, the city put in an orchard space here. So we have cherry trees growing at Cherry Street Garden. And then I think we're actually the only orchard that got the cherry trees that year. So we're, we're very happy to have those. Yeah. Well, they, they probably saw your application <laughs> on the ground. Like, well, we have to give it to them, right? Yeah, it's, it's pretty spectacular also. The, the cherry trees are incredibly productive. Anybody and everybody should come by and pick those in July because we have plenty to share. Right. And then we have the apple trees, which are just coming into bloom now, and, or into harvest time now making some amazing apple cider out here in the garden a few different events so we've we've got grown both in the number of beds we have as well as having the orchard and we've also re refurbished a lot of our beds from being the original eight inch high beds to being more accessible 24 inch beds because more than half the gardeners here are older elderly and or physically disabled so 
Our goal is for people to be able to easily reach into their bed, to be fully participating in the garden experience. Yeah, and so on that note of the, the gardeners who are here, the people who are gardening here, um, I see names on a lot of these beds, right? And um, from talking to some of the gardeners, my understanding is that a lot of them live in the surrounding area, right? Correct. So almost everybody who gardens here lives within walking distance. So either they live a, a block over at the Cary Court Apartments, which is the Housing Authority building, or there are surrounding neighborhoods, uh, na neighbor neighbors, which is great. Keeps a lot of eyes on the garden, keeps people sure. walking over and engaged. Um, and you know, and this you know this is classified as a food desert, so it's really nice to have a, a space here where healthy food's getting grown. We have a couple beds that we plant just to share with neighbors, so that even if you don't buy in and have a bed and and are one of the garden club members you you can still you're still welcome here lisa and rick established this garden for a very tangible purpose access to healthy food in a food desert over time though the garden has served additional intangible purposes like connecting santana and her family to their southern roots and recently becoming a place where beauty is celebrated at first this meant flowers on the grounds natural for a garden right but last year, Bloom MKE received a grant to get some public art in the garden. They went straight to gardeners for ideas, who came back to them with ideas on how to celebrate the community that was building there, as well as to serve a functional purpose, like benches that are easy for people with mobility issues to get into and out of, as well as a shade station held up by totems designed by local students, as well as murals to celebrate the gardeners there. Altogether, these pieces are helping the garden function as a gathering place, both for pollinators and for people. I firmly believe that every neighborhood in this city deserves beauty. And so to me, as a, as a total gardener geek, to me that was flowers. To me that was having the beauty of the natural surroundings. But then when we had this opportunity to get this community challenge grant from the Joy Engine Project, they, they gave us you know, the, the, the money and the founding and honestly the inspiration to say, hey, what else could you do here? And it has been out of this world transformational to me. I, as beautiful as it is, it's just a, a whole nother level now that there's art in the space. So they gave us this grant in the summer of 2022. And in the fall, we started meeting with gardeners and doing listening sessions and saying, what would you want to see? And some themes came out really strongly. One was the gardeners felt that this is a space that's important for community building and community gathering. So they wanted to see more seating. They wanted to see some shade. I mean, you know, none of us love sitting on the hot sun, but especially if, you know, if you're, if you're elderly or if you're on some you know, blood pressure medications, that hot sun can be dangerous. Yeah. So, um, so we had the idea of part of the art could be this shade oasis that we're sitting in right now. And so, you know, we have the shade sail above us, but then instead of just having posts in the ground, we have these totems that were designed by Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design students and then carved by University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee architecture students. So we have these carved totem posts holding up the shade sail. And then we have these amazing benches that were designed by the architecture students and built by them. And they are creative and comfortable, yeah, I'm glad to say. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so it's, it's been really amazing to, to have this little oasis right in the middle of the garden. So you can sit here and look out at your plants and, and enjoy the natural beauty um, and be very comfortable doing that. But then if you look around at the five different mural projects that are in here, it, it just, for me, it just blows my mind. Each one was done by a different Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design or a MyEd student or a group of students. And, but what you see is that they really heard from the listening sessions that we shared with them how important it was to that the garden talk about family, that it talk about legacy and the, the legacy of agriculture, 
for people moving up from the south and as well as the sense of community they wanted to feel in this space. So when you look at these pieces, they're all unique and different. The artists have totally different styles, but you absolutely feel that sense of groundedness and community and family and how important the agricultural roots that this community has, even though they're now in an, living in urban settings. And so to, to me, each piece really powerfully speaks for itself. One of those Myad design students that Lisa mentioned is Isaac Pulliam. He met Lisa and Rick through the school service learning program, and he was immediately drawn to the project. He listened to stories about Santana and her grandmother and knew he wanted to feature them in a mural that he would create for the garden. Well, when we heard about this opportunity, it was in the middle of winter, so there wasn't much action here yeah. in the garden. So you don't really go outside in the, in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, I just got a whole lot of photos from Lisa of, of um, Santana and her family, and I just went, I just created a Photoshop composition of the different photos that I had from them. Now, Isaac is a humble guy, and he's not one to talk himself up, and believe me, I tried to get him to do so. Because this is a beautiful piece. Beautiful in a just a matter-of-fact, everyday, slice-of-life kind of sense. It captures Santana and her grandmother carrying their harvest home amidst a backdrop of cherry trees and fruiting tomatoes. When you look at the mural, it's as if Santana just noticed you standing there, while her grandmother just looks ready to get home and fry some fresh tomatoes after a long day harvesting. And Isaac is happy with how the piece turned out, but he's also happy with where it ended up. He sees gardens as a natural place for the visual arts to live, because he sees gardeners as artists who have a similar process to muralists like himself, but just happen to use soil as their medium instead of paint. It's a good feeling to be part of this community, and um, especially being in a community of gardeners, there's a lot of um, connections that go hand in hand with gardening and art, especially like from, from beginning to end, deciding out, you gotta planning out like the process, you gotta plan out everything, like how you're gonna apply everything, what you got, what materials you have to use that gets put into everything, and you don't really know how it's gonna turn out until it's a finished product. After spending about an hour in the garden with Santana, Lisa, and Isaac, it felt like an extended exhale. More than a breath of fresh air, Cherry Street is a reminder of how beautiful our city can be when we take the time to nurture and appreciate it. For Lake Effect, I'm Sam Woods. The Cherry Street Community Garden is located near 23rd and Cherry Street and is managed by Bloom MKE, a nonprofit organization that uses gardening to foster community engagement. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll be joined by participants of the upcoming Walk Together event that celebrates the strength of child abuse survivors and seeks to create cultural change. Plus, we'll look at So Far Sound's local pop-up shows that showcase surprise sets from local and touring artists. Also happening tomorrow is our free Lake Effect on-site event at Anodyne Coffee in Walker's Point. We'll be discussing and celebrating what makes that neighborhood unique, and you can find information on how to get your tickets at wuwm.com. Thanks for joining us on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.